0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, October 1st. I'm Marco Werman. The war in Afghanistan grinds on, yet this soldier says... It barely registers back home in the States.
1: You know, it's it's become just another just another stopping point between the sports and the weather, and that's that's not
0: acceptable. And later, the historic covered market in Aleppo, Syria, is severely damaged in fighting there. We hear what made the market a global treasure.
2: As you walk through, you can actually smell and breathe what it would have been like to actually walk through a market in the 13th, 14th, or 15th or 16th centuries.
3: RISE the world is supported by Medtronic Hosting 25 Global Heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark, and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Three American soldiers were killed today in eastern Afghanistan. A man on a motorbike drove himself and his bomb into a joint U.S.-Afghan patrol in the market area of the city of Host. Many Afghan soldiers and civilians were killed in the explosion as well. U.S. forces only resumed joint patrols last week. Those patrols had been suspended for a time because, you may recall, of the number of Afghan troops turning their guns on their allies. It's a tough story and a tough issue. But some veterans and current members of the military are concerned that in this election year, the war in Afghanistan and other defense issues are being ignored. Sergeant Jonathan Rabb touches on that in his recent post for The New York Times' At War blog. Rabb is currently deployed in Kuwait with the New York National Guard. He's also a spokesman for the vets group Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And, uh, Sergeant Rabb, you write about this horrible silence when it comes to the war what do you mean? Explain that.
1: Uh, when I wrote that, I meant it uh, to refer to a couple different levels. Um, one is the personal. Pretty much throughout history, whenever Soldiers or warriors have gone away from their civilization or nation. They've always felt a a sense of distance, uh, and rightfully so. And when they return a lot of times, especially in this most recent war, obviously, they have a hard time reconnecting with families and uh, friends or even society in general. So that's the first level. And the second level is something that I've noticed a lot more on this my second deployment, uh, especially during this presidential election, is that it seems that because the war has been going on so long and all these conflicts uh, around the world that the U.S. military is engaged in, uh, a lot of people seem to have tuned it out, and it doesn't seem to be a, a primary issue, especially in regards to the presidential election.
0: Kind of a, a war fatigue.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's going on a lot. I
0: mean, you mentioned
1: the uh, the headlines. You know, they're they're horrific. They're awful, and a lot of times they refer to people that we might even know, or uh, you know, uh, family members or friends or friends of friends. But uh, people tune it out. You know, it's it's become just another just another stopping point between the sports and the weather, and that's that's not acceptable.
0: I mean, we should mention that you've served previous deployments in Afghanistan, and I'm wondering, when you do come back to the States, when you're on leave, do you, do you feel that people want to know about what you're doing?
1: Uh, I think it depends on the individual. Um, I was only in Afghanistan once, and I came back and uh, actually transitioned out of the military for about a year. Most of my family and friends definitely wanted to reconnect and definitely wanted to uh, talk with me about it, but there was definitely that that reticence, that that fear that they didn't want to offend me or bring up something that was uncomfortable.
0: Well, you're, you're in Kuwait, as we pointed out. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, there's obviously no problem staying abreast of the news and, and seeing what's online. Right. Um, but uh, w- what's your take on the coverage of the of the news headlines that, that affect you as a soldier? I mean, uh, w- what about what the candidates are saying about w- what you're doing right now?
1: Well, one of the reasons I, I wrote the article is because I, I don't really see uh, either candidate really addressing what's going on in Afghanistan or our, our military policy, except in kind of like big, broad strokes. And I think that's a mistake. And I think a presidential election presents no better opportunity than to have that discussion. What exactly is our military accomplishing or aren't we accomplishing? What are what are our goals? What's the end state? It seems like we've been at war for a decade on and we don't really have coherent policy necessarily. We don't have a robust discussion. We don't have a lot of people at home really tuned in. And uh, concerned about what it is we're trying to accomplish.
0: Right. Well, as you say, that war in Afghanistan has been going on for over 10 years. Why do you think that discussion isn't happening?
1: Um, You know, you mentioned war fatigue. And uh, I think a lot of people, the majority of Americans definitely do support the military. And I think sometimes in that support, they're not always willing to question necessarily what's going on. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily that what's happening is negative. I'm not saying it's positive. I'm I'm just saying that I'm not really here, not really hearing those hard questions being asked. Period.
0: Right. But um, but the president and his Republican rival better not have war fatigue. I mean, they're uh, one of them is going to have to deal with it. Why aren't they talking about it?
1: Absolutely, and that's a good question, and that's something I want I want to bring up to people. And I and I wish that was addressed more in the mainstream media i wish that was addressed more outside of places than just the new york times at war blog um, whenever the the war is mentioned it's usually presented in the context of how does the discussion of this policy or this war affect the presidential candidates uh, chances at reelection rather than saying okay what's best for the
0: nation now in your uh, blog at the new york times at war site y- you point out that maybe the conclusion is people and politicians need to talk about these things but Don't be freaked out if I laugh when you talk about them. So explain that.
1: Laughter a lot of times can be a form of catharsis, right? So whenever you're relieved, uh, you watch a scary movie and something pops out and says, boo, the first thing you do after you jump is laugh. You share a laugh with friends. It's a way to blow off steam. It's a a way to be relaxed, to remind yourself that it's okay that you're still here. And uh, if I come home and someone starts discussing something difficult, I might laugh just because I'm so relieved to hear that someone else is worried about these issues, too.
0: Now, aside from the war, Sergeant Rabb, what are the big issues for you that need addressing?
1: All right. I think the number one thing right now, military-wide, especially in the Army, has got to be suicide. Um, since uh, the beginning of this year, we've had about 80 potential uh, reserve component suicides and about 131 potential active-duty Army suicides. And that's just in the Army, and that's just this year alone. And those numbers are probably going to increase going forward. Uh, myself, I just taught a class on suicide prevention on the Army stand-down day, the day my article was published, that's definitely the number one issue uh, facing veterans in the military community. And uh, number two beyond that, I would say, is definitely uh, unemployment. You know, the veteran employment numbers are typically lower than the average population. Those are problems we definitely
0: need to address. Even those numbers you gave us, though, I mean, that's uh, practically one suicide per day since the beginning of the year. That's shocking.
1: Right. It's terrible. I mean, often it uh, outpaces the, the casualty numbers from Afghanistan. Um, that's, that's a huge
0: problem. Sergeant Jonathan Rabb, an author and blogger, he was speaking with us from Kuwait where he's currently deployed with the New York National Guard. Sergeant Rabb, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. The violence in the Syrian city of Aleppo has been relentless. We hear about an untold number of human lives lost in the fighting there between government forces and rebel fighters. But a story about how the fighting has now engulfed a piece of Syria's cultural heritage as well puts that violence into a poignant historical context. Buildings that have been around for 500 years, gone in just minutes. We're talking about Aleppo's souk, a centuries-old covered market that's one of the best preserved in the Middle East. It's been gutted by fire. Hundreds of shops in the souk have reportedly been destroyed. UNESCO, which recognizes Aleppo's old city as a World Heritage Site, described the damage as a tragedy. Syrian-born professor Amr al-Azam teaches Middle Eastern history and anthropology at Shawnee State University in Ohio.
2: The old city of Aleppo is, is an amazing example of the urban fabric that you see in a medieval Islamic Arab city. It has all the basic components, the mosques, the khans, the souks, the khans meaning the caravanserais along with the private dwellings and the public houses, you know, and so on and so forth. It's this complete mix that comes together that makes Aleppo one of those few rare places in the world where we can see all these different components coming together. In addition, Aleppo is also rather unique in that it is a living, breathing city mixing both ancient and and modern together. So when you walk through these souks, and remember, these souks are basically a labyrinth of narrow alleys and passages, very narrow with stores very, very tightly packed. And as you walk through, you can actually smell and breathe what it would have been like to actually walk through a market in the 13th, 14th or 15th or 16th centuries. And you would see wares, many of which would have been sold even back then. Although you will see next to them also modern wares, you know, plastic bowls, um, maybe uh, modern material uh, furniture and so on. on. But you'll also still see all that traditional artifacts and items that would have been on sale in medieval Islamic uh, Aleppo. Um, Mm particularly the smell of the spices and and the goods that would be coming, traveling from the east, from China, right across the world to Aleppo and from the west, from Europe into uh, Aleppo as well and back again.
0: Now, uh, some parts of uh, the souk uh, date back to the 13th century. Where do you get that sense of that, that medieval quality in the souk itself?
2: Well, if you look at the architecture, I mean, you have those vaulted ceilings, You have the narrow passages. And most of it actually dates to the 16th and 17th century. But there are some of the very early parts that go back as early as the 13th century. And it's that superb preservation that you find. Just walking through the souk and just the smells and and the hustle and the bustle and the people wheeling and dealing. And you will also see a mixture of different people. You see Turks, you see Arabs, you see um, different um, ethnicities sort of mixing there. And I think it's that fabric and mosaic of different entities that would have also reflected what medieval Aleppo would have been like that make it so real.
0: Professor, I have to ask you, as many have today, why did this violence occur in the souk? Why this destruction in the souk? And I can only think that the the rebels went in to occupy it and made it a target. Don't they know better?
2: Well, yes. I mean, basically on Friday, we had a major push by the opposition, by the rebel forces to try and expand their control of uh, different parts of the city. And that included the old parts of the city. Now, if we just take the argument of who is supposed to be the more responsible, if the rebels are irresponsible, you'd argue that the regime should be the more responsible of the two. And clearly it isn't. And it is indiscriminate. I accept what you're saying in that if the rebels know that the regime is indiscriminate in its use of force and will instantly follow them and shell them there and destroy the souks, then they should know better. But remember, the rebels are in a fight for their lives. here. This is a, a life and death issue. I'm not justifying why they should have gone there, but ultimately, this is a battle for survival in its most extreme forms. And the regime's use of incendiary artillery to dislodge rebels from that place is just typical of its flagrant and blatant use of excessive force and its willingness to employ wanton destruction with no thought for the effects afterwards. This is very important. The Assad regime and and the people who are fighting for it have clearly said time and time again, al-Assad al-Nahruq al-Balad, which means essentially Assad, you know, you support the Assad's or we burn the country down. Mm. And this is effectively what they did. They were demonstrating in no uncertain terms that you're either with the Assad or we will destroy you. And that's what they did. And they don't care. They'll destroy houses, they'll destroy livelihoods, they'll destroy even the history and cultural heritage of this country to maintain their grip on power.
0: Do you know how much of Aleppo's souk has been destroyed at this point?
2: Right now, it's very difficult to exactly assess how much damage has been done. I would say at the very least 50%, maybe even 70% of the souk has been destroyed. And that is so catastrophic because rebuilding that is going to be very, very, very difficult and, and very, very costly. And this is not just about the physical aspect. This is also about people's lives, people's livelihoods. Their entire sort of economic existence was based on these stores that they possessed and the goods that they had in them. And now they've been destroyed. So there's an economy here that has also been destroyed. And the livelihoods of thousands of families have also been, are going to have been affected by this.
0: Amir al-Azam is an Associate Professor of Middle Eastern History and Anthropology at Shawnee State University. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You can see photos of Aleppo's historic market before and after the destruction there at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, a two-night special beginning tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's probably not much overlap between readers of the satirical online magazine The Onion And those of Iran's state-backed Fars news agency. But it only took a little while for someone to point out this distinctly onion-y headline, which appeared on the Fars website recently. Gallup poll. Rural whites prefer Ahmadinejad to Obama. Well, it turns out the headline and full article were pulled from the Onion and ran as a Fars news story. Now, this is not the first time the irony-deprived have taken the onion at face value, but we thought it made for a great excuse to look at the current state of political satire in Iran with Kelly Niknejad. She's the editor of Tehran Bureau. It's an independent source of news on Iran based here in Boston. Kelly, welcome to you.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So in the onion story, the ironies keep piling on, apparently, after being caught out running the original article as their own news story, Uh, Fars, this news agency, published an apology which contains still more plagiarism. Uh, We know Fars is propaganda, but I mean, really, have they no shame?
4: Um, No, I think they think it's normal. Um, There's been many instances of um, photoshopping, you know, more missiles in the background or um, when – Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran in 1979. They don't like some of the people in the background because they're wearing ties or now have been executed. So they just basically, for the revolutionary issue, will take out people in the background that they don't like. So um, they're they're known for propaganda, and I think most Iranians don't take farce um, seriously, whether they're in Iran or not. And it's close to the Revolutionary Guards, which is not I I don't think they've had much journalism training.
0: Mm, uh, Probably not too much humor training either. (laughs)
4: Um, Iranians do have a great sense of humor, actually, even the most humorless ones do have an appreciation for it. I think it's the only way all of us can deal with the misery and absurdities that we have to deal with on a constant basis. But um, sometimes they're funny when they are not even trying. And I think this would be one of those um, instances.
0: Now, we've heard of political satire in, in Iran, but is there anything like the onion in Iran, you know, kind of pranksters creating fake news stories?
4: You know, I think there's so much of it that goes out instantaneously by text and on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, we don't know where the original source is, which is good because it keeps people safe. Um, I think in the past, someone, a blogger that was based outside of Iran tried to do one and, um, he got sued for it by some, you know, Iranians living in, in DC. I think that was the end of that. But it's, it's very prevalent in the culture. I don't think it even needs to have a separate publication because so much of what is um, written about Iran is kind of funny if it wasn't so dire. But um, Like know, what? Give
0: me an example of the best thing you've heard, the best joke you've heard that's been making the rounds in social media.
4: Well, you know, I, I think um, a recent one would be um, the Netanyahu speech at the UN when he held up his bomb chart. Um, some – this um, Iranian student Ali Abdi um, from Yale put up something on his Facebook page saying Begam, Bigam, which is a reference to a notorious moment during the um, presidential election in 2009 when Ahmadinejad was going to drop his own bomb on Mousavi and kind of reveal this some, – something that was going to um, – about his wife, his academic credentials. Figurative bomb, of course. Yes, yeah. yes of course. <laughs> Um Mousavi was a um, – he was running – he was the um, – he ran against um, Ahmadinejad and he was the one that many believe um, probably won the election. And so it, 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 since 2009, every t- that Big Am, Big Am comes up a lot. So this time it was like when Nid-Niyah, um held up his chart, it was like he wrote Big Am, Big Am. And to everyone like uh, within a sec with less than a second, they're like, OK, this is the Israeli Ahmadinejad. Right. and. It went viral immediately on Facebook. So, yeah, I, I like that one.
0: So in, in Iran today, it's safe to say that most uh, satire takes place in social media, not really in a kind of person-to-person public sphere?
4: Um, I mean, that's the safe way to go about it, especially when you don't know who originated um, a certain joke. It's in everyday life. You know, Iranians um, are always reading behind the lines, um, between the lines, even when you're trying to give them facts straight out.
0: Needless to say, there's a, a great need for satire when things aren't going well, and I suppose Iranians are really trying to use that as much as possible.
4: We would not exist um, without humor. I mean, that's how we get through everything, and it, there's a long history of it even before the revolution.
0: Kelly Najad, the editor of Tehran Bureau, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Still in the world of fiction, but at least we know it's fiction. Sex, lies, and Deutschmarks. That's the stuff of a new German thriller. In the story, Germany is besieged by an ever-worsening euro crisis. A new political party has surged into office on a wave of discontent. Its mission? To pull Germany out of the Eurozone and bring back the Deutschmark. It's pulp fiction with a dose of prophecy. Reporter Connor Donovan caught up with the author Marcus Will in Berlin. Die Stunde des Adlers, The Hour of the Eagle, has
5: everything you'd expect in a thriller. Heroes and villains, and an opening scene in a top-secret bunker, packed with Deutschmarks, of course. But while you're whipping through the book, Marcus Will wants to give you an economics lesson. He's a former financial journalist, and he has an agenda.
2: So I decided
6: to take the layer of a thriller and entertain people with uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll and combining that part of the plot with with my message that we should keep and maintain the euro.
5: Will makes it clear he doesn't think his scenario is likely. But set aside the sinister elements, he's aiming to paint what he says is a plausible picture of what might happen if Germany did go back to the Deutschmark In the book, it doesn't look good. A more valuable currency would batter Germany's export-based economy and throw it into a major recession. Germans start bracing for a catastrophic currency change, burying gold in the backyard to provide for themselves in a future where money has lost its value. It's enough to make a real-life Deutschmark devotee think twice, if the hypothetical future holds up to scrutiny. Ulrich Blum is a professor of economic policy at Martin Luther University in Halle, Germany. He hasn't read Ville's book, but he says he can't imagine Germany would leave the euro on its
7: own. If Germany opts out of the euro area, it will be a northern or a core euro that includes the Nordic countries, the Netherlands, Austria,
5: Belgium, Luxembourg, of course. But if this euro split were to occur, and Bloom thinks there's a small possibility it might, the consequences might look something like the scenario laid out in the novel, he says. A big recession in Germany, a potentially critical situation in countries like Italy or Greece, and maybe even secret meetings – In fact, back when the euro was first introduced, Bloom says he even proposed keeping a secret stash of Deutschmarks as a last resort, just like the one in that opening scene. So as
7: always said we should put all the old D-Mark currency into one of the vaults, uh, the atomic vaults, that were no longer needed. People didn't listen to me, but I think it's still a nice
5: idea to have a bunker where everything can be t- rushed out within a day. In the novel, the Deutschmark Party comes to power partly because the established parties do a bad job engaging the public in conversation about the euro. That's what Marcus Will says he's trying to do with this thriller.
6: Currently, the discussions are all very technical. Does Greece need another uh, package of billions of euros? But we are, we are kind of losing that bigger picture on why are we actually doing that.
5: Vil hopes his thriller creates a scary enough picture to persuade readers to keep the Deutschmarks resurrection in the realm of fiction. So far, it's earned favorable reviews, especially the crescendoing conclusion. The biggest complaint might be that it's too realistic. As one reviewer put it, all those secret meetings were, quote, a bit too earnest. For the world, I'm Connor Donovan, Berlin.
0: I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a photographer profiles a group of women serving as guards on the India-Pakistan border.
6: One of the girls, she kept telling me that things changed when she would go back home, that they actually found military life more sort of liberating than, than family life, and they started worrying if they would go back and be able to get married.
3: The RI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. A two-night special beginning tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. (laughs)
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. When the earthquake hit Haiti in January 2010, many in the impoverished country lost what little they had. Nearly three years later, about 400,000 remain homeless. Many are still living in tent camps, and they're at risk of eviction. But these days, there's some pushback. As Amy Bracken reports, Haiti's homeless are getting organized.
8: On a recent Sunday morning outside of Port-au-Prince, impeccably dressed men, women, and children file into the huge Grace Church. But across the lawn, a corrugated metal fence hides a different scene, several hundred tents and makeshift shelters. This is Grace Village Camp. No one here attends the church next door. They're angry about the horrible conditions here. They're especially angry at the landlord, who's the church pastor. He's been trying to get them off his property. A church representative says they're just evicting troublemakers and trying to help those with some means to relocate. But many camp residents say the pastor and his associates are using sinister tactics. Francis Alexandre emerges from a tent with a large manila envelope. He pulls out an x-ray of his torso and a signed letter on medical stationery.
1: The camp manager was going to destroy my neighbor's tent, so I said, you can't do that, and blocked his way. He came back with a security guard and beat me with a baton. I went to the police, but they ignored me.
8: So Alexandre went to the courthouse, where they told him to document his injuries.
5: I talked to an evicted camp resident who's been fighting this
1: kind of abuse, and he said, we need to report what happens to the attorney.
8: The attorney is Patrice Florvilus. After the earthquake, he formed an organization that represents residents of tent camps who've been threatened with eviction.
4: Our strategy now is to the proprietor to the legal
8: Our strategy is to stop evictions by making landlords follow the law, says Florvilus, which can mean a lengthy legal process. And that's what the landlord wants to avoid. That doesn't always work. Still, a legal defeat can sometimes turn into a de facto victory. In one case, the mayor of Delma ordered families off government land. A court upheld the eviction order, but then the mayor backed off. Locals say that was because of organized opposition. But there are also lots of failures. Jackson Doliscar is a community organizer. He says getting people to believe in the power of grassroots activism has been a major challenge. In 1990, when Jean Bertrand Aristide made his successful bid for president, he encouraged Haitians to organize for change. But the hoped for improvements did not materialize. Doliscar thinks that people in Haiti today are desperate enough to try again.
1: When things are more difficult for people, like they're having problems with the landlord, they say, if I don't join the organization today, I'll be thrown out. So they join the organization.
8: After the earthquake, Doliscar's grassroots group joined forces with 25 others to form a housing rights coalition. One of their projects is a slum called Jalousie. It's in a precarious spot on a hillside overlooking the city. This summer, the government ordered residents to evacuate. Government officials deny they ever plan to force Jaluzi residents from their homes. They have been encouraging hundreds to leave in exchange for money to relocate. But many fear being homeless again after spending more than a year living in the streets after the earthquake. Marie-Michelle Moise lived in a tent in a city park with her young children for more than two years. She says she finally got funds to move into a tin shack in Jaluzi, the only neighborhood she could afford. When I asked her where she would live if she had the choice, she laughs at the idea.
9: <laughs> if you don't work in this country,
8: she says, you don't have a choice. And yet, Mouise says she believes people can make a difference by taking to the streets and pressuring the government. I ask if she's afraid she'll be forced to leave, and she shakes her head. She says, we had a demonstration, and they said they wouldn't destroy our homes but things aren't quite that easy. Even some supporters of Haiti's housing rights movement say popular protests are no silver bullet. Alexis Erkert works with Other Worlds, an organization of women that supports grassroots groups around the globe. She says Haitian authorities often dismiss the activists.
6: You know, the last time they are, they did have a sit-in, they managed to get a meeting with the, not the Minister of Social Affairs but his cabinet. And then they asked for an email address or phone number for follow-up, and and they were just laughed at and kicked out.
8: I ask if she thinks the movement can succeed. Not without the international solidarity piece. In other words, if Haitian officials won't listen to Port-au-Prince's poorest, they might pay attention to their overseas allies, at least those in donor countries. For the world, I'm Amy Bracken, Port-au-Prince.
0: You can see Amy's photos from Port-au-Prince and read her blog post about her visit to the seaside town of Leogan, which was at the epicenter of the 2010 quake. That's all at theworld.org. In today's GeoQuiz, we explore the history of a statue known as the Iron Man. Iron Man is a small statue, a 10-inch tall carving of the Buddhist god Visravana, and is thought to be about a thousand years old. The statue was taken from Tibet to Germany by the Nazis back in the 1930s. Now researchers who've examined the statue say it was carved out of something called the Chinga, That's something that altered the Earth's landscape about 15,000 years ago, and we want you to tell us what the Chinga is or where it left its mark on Earth. We'll get answers from a German geologist and find out more about Iron Man in a few minutes. It's a dangerous and desolate 1800 miles that divide India from Pakistan. That's the tense border separating two nuclear armed neighbors. Arms and drug smuggling are also common there. And yet over the last three years, Indian women have for the first time become a part of the military force protecting that border. Their stories and experiences as sentinels captured the attention of Indian photographer Pulomi Basu. She spent time with these women in their homes and on the front lines and has created To Conquer Her Land, a portfolio of her photographs. She joins us from Calcutta. So why did the Indian military actually allow women soldiers in the first place to serve as border security patrol?
6: I think a part of this was I saw it as like a PR exercise, sort of, you know, to tell the world that it was a progressive step in sending women into one of the most dangerous land, which we're all aware of in India-Pakistan borders. But um, having women on the borders became an important thing because a lot of the women are smugglers They're not allowed to be touched by men in India. They cannot be frisked by the male soldiers. So I think bringing the women in was primary reason was that.
0: No doubt, as you say, that this is a dangerous place to be stationed. So who are these women? Where do they come from?
6: These um, women are rural village women, mostly because they are part of the Border Security Armed Forces, which is almost like the stepchild of the army. And a job like this, which has to battle with like acute conditions and harsh realities, these women are women who come from impoverished backgrounds, village girls.
0: Now, y- your photographs are, are, are pretty poignant. Uh, you, you have some in color. Others are in black and white, though. What conditions warranted both formats?
6: I sort of took an aesthetic route down this when I was photographing. I wanted to, uh, the duality in the story, like the women before she was transformed into soldiers, you know, I thought there was like the slower, the relaxed, being in home full of love and content showed a lot of color in their lives in the first part of the story. And as they sort of progressed and went to the border, I just saw that their lives started to wear off. They were on their own. They were not without cell phones or any sort of connections at all. And things got, started getting starker and grimmer. And I just thought the best format to use this would be black and white.
0: You write in your essay that going onto the border in these patrols gives these women a sense of independence. But clearly, judging from some of your photographs, it's a big lifestyle change for them. Can you just maybe identify the moments when you were with these female soldiers where they felt the pressure and maybe have preferred not to have been there?
6: One of the girls, she kept telling me that things changed when she would go back home. Her mother didn't seem to know (laughs) the same person she was that she used to be. And that they actually found military life more sort of liberating than, than the family life. And they started worrying if they would go back and be able to get married. And it's, it's, it's for me, it's very interesting to see where this all goes, you know, a few years down the line.
0: You know, so much has been said about the, the standoff, if you will, between uh, these two nuclear states, Pakistan and India. Did you get the sense that these women uh, from India who are patrolling this border, who are on Sentinel, do they know what's at stake or do they kind of feel like... Well, we're kind of pawns in this public relations uh, game.
6: No, they don't. For them, the bigger picture is that one, as one of them says, "I'm here to conquer the land, not to fall in love with it." You know, what I mean, for them, it's about being then doing something for the nation, doing something for the uniform, because otherwise they would just be married off, you know, or like be in other other kind of difficult situations that most village girls face.
0: And given that kind of dilemma or that that trade off, wh- which of your photographs do you feel captures their life and this, this duality
6: i think um one of the soldiers who gets injured in her knee and she was traumatized she was absolutely traumatized and she just did not want to be there you know i mean those were the times that it's it really hit them you know and they have this like silence and lull sort of expression and moment and they don't really have anything to offer and say
0: is, is that the photograph of the woman in black and white uh, on her cot with her fingers over her face
6: yes, that's right
0: well, your, your pictures are eye-opening, and our listeners, you can see Pulomi Basu's photographs at theworld.org. Pulomi, thank you very much for speaking with us.
6: Thank you so much, Marco. Lovely to speak to you.
0: Let's get back to our geo-quiz now about the Iron Man. It's an ancient statue that was taken from Tibet and brought back to Germany by the Nazis in the 1930s. Elmar Buchner is a geologist at the University of Stuttgart in Germany. Professor, what, what is your surprising conclusion about the statue?
7: Well, the first conclusion was that it is made of a meteorite, and it was made of a rare type of meteorite, of an iron meteorite. It's part of a meteorite fall about 15,000 years ago. Another conclusion is that this statue belongs probably to the so-called Bern culture, which took place in the 11th century, so this statue must be nearly 1,000 years old. You
0: believe the material comes from an ancient meteorite called the Chinga meteorite. The Chinga meteorite today is the answer to the geoquiz. Where did it strike the Earth?
7: Chinga was a meteorite fall about fifteen thousand years ago in the area of uh, Mongolia and Siberia, a few hundred kilometers away from Tibet. 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 Yeah. Yeah. But we think that uh, this, or we sure that this is part of the so-called Chinga meteorite strewn field, and It was carved in the area of Mongolia and Siberia and brought to Tibet
0: afterwards. so was it carved into the statue because it was seen as this very rare and special stone that came slamming to the earth, or was there another reason?
7: Well, due to the fact that uh, the meteorite fall was about 15,000 years ago, it is, of course, it is not likely that people watched this uh, meteorite fall. But I think uh, these uh, ancient people in Asia were aware of the fact that uh, meteorites fall from the sky and I think they knew how a meteorite looks like. Uh, It is absolutely possible that the carver of this meteorite was aware of the fact that it uh, might be a meteorite. The Inuit culture in Greenland also made uh, objects of meteorites, uh, for example, iron knives. But this meteorite that we analyzed, the Iron Man statue, is the only uh, statue that shows a human figure In this case, a Buddhist god made of a meteorite. So I think it's the most elaborated piece of art made of a meteorite worldwide. Why did the Nazis want to get their hands on this?
0: And they did. They had it for a while.
7: Yeah, I think they brought many pieces of art from Asia, from Tibet to Germany. And I think uh, they were maybe attracted by the the so-called swastika uh, on the arm of, of the statue.
0: Right, we're talking an ancient Hindu swastika here. It has nothing yeah, to do yeah. with the symbolism of the Nazi swastika, does it? Yeah,
7: it's a 3,000-year-old sun symbol.
0: So, Professor Buchner, uh, tell us, where is the sculpture now, the Iron Man?
7: <laughs> of course, I'm uh, not able to to tell you or to answer this question because of the high value of the statue. We don't want to tell people where they can find it. <laughs> you know what I mean. So we plan to show the statue in the Meteorite Museum in, in Vienna.
0: Do you have any souvenir pieces of the meteorite? I mean, there must be lots of little bits around.
7: Yeah, just a little piece for the geochemical analyzers. We had to cut a piece off to analyze the statue. And of course, I have a very a small piece for my own.
0: Elmar Buchner is a geologist at the University of Stuttgart. Thanks very much for telling us about the Iron Man.
7: Okay, thank you too.
0: You can see the 1,000-year-old Iron Man statue
3: at theworld.org. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm
0: Marco Werman. This is The World. Italy's economic crisis continues to deepen. That means fewer chances of finding work for Italians who've already lost their jobs in the crisis. Many unemployed Italians have left their country to look for jobs elsewhere. At the same time, the crisis is hurting those who, not so long ago, moved to Italy in search of a better life. Those migrants, many of them from Africa, now find themselves scrambling to make ends meet. Martin Davis reports from Italy's northern economic heartland. This is the marketplace in Colonial al Serio, a northern Italian
10: town that radiates tradition. The castle and the moat surrounding it add a sense of history and security. But probe a little deeper and you see there's little feeling of security here. Djembe Sisse comes from Senegal in West Africa. She runs a market stall selling imitation leather handbags she buys wholesale from Chinese suppliers. She's been making a living for 30 years in Italy and sending money to her family back home. But the country's shrinking economy is taking a toll. Sales are down and taxes are up. <laughs>
9: At the beginning we managed to make a little money but now there's the economic crisis and we can't do anything. Working and paying, working and paying. Here you breathe and you pay.
10: She pays rent on her place in the market and a large loan on the van she uses to transport her stall and merchandise. She says not only is it harder to support her and her kids, the economic downturn means she can't send money home to her parents
9: we used to but now with the crisis we don't do it anymore we can barely even live decently ourselves in fact now we take money from Senegal to live to pay the rent, the food to get through the month it's very tough my parents send us 700 or even 800 euros three times a year because I can't make it on my own
10: the number of Senegalese people coming to Italy, as Djembe Sissé did, increased dramatically in the 1980s after a new law allowed them to work legally in the private sector. 90,000 Senegalese now live in the country. As they settled in the region, they created their own community association. Amadou Njaye. Amadou Njai has been vice president of the association for 25 years. He says the situation now is worse than it's ever been.
5: Because this time, people who've lost their jobs can't find work again. A lot of the unemployment is permanent. Some of our members can't even pay the rent, so they can't afford to send money home to Senegal. This really is a crisis, and people are now wanting to buy a ticket to return home to Africa.
10: It's not just money that isn't flowing into Senegal. Customarily, the Senegalese community repatriates its dead for burial in Africa. Mr Njai told me this was a key reason his association was set up. As the crisis has gotten worse, the group's members have found themselves passing the hat more and more to help people send their relatives back. Back in the marketplace, Jumbi has decided enough is enough for her in Italy.
9: Now we're arranging to shut the business down and go back to live in Senegal. I want to go back, but not my children. For me, it's not convenient anymore. I spend more than I earn. I get money from Senegal to be able to stay here.
10: Senegal receives around $1.4 billion a year in remittances, roughly 10% of its GDP. Italy is the most popular destination for Senegalese migrants in Europe after France, the country that colonised it. So, if enough people followed Djembe Sise home, the West African nation could find itself in a lot of trouble. For The World, I'm Martin Davis, Colonio Al Serio, Italy.
0: We close our program today with British singer-songwriter Ben Howard. His debut album is called Every Kingdom. It's an intimate album recorded in a converted barn in Devon in southwest England. That provided an idyllic setting in the country but also by the sea. Ben Howard says that's precisely the atmosphere he set out to capture on the record. It's always a funny one when
11: you do a debut album that it becomes a, the the best of so far. Um, so a lot of the songs were already written. We, we had a lot of time to really fine-tune stuff, and it, uh, we definitely really wanted to put across where we were and have those sort of vibes and the intimacy of the place come across on the record. Like my favorite record's always when you can you, you hear the extra little bits of... Um, atmosphere and stuff and the little bits that really give a record character. For me, the Black Flies was definitely one of the songs from the record that it was written during the sort of recording process and it was written in the middle of winter and it sort of has a lot of character of of the surrounding area, you know. Devon was definitely laced throughout that song. It was it was very much a wintertime song and looking out the window at home and the sort of the bleakness of the place sometimes. I think it came across really, really good on record. It's one of the songs I'm most proud of, definitely. Um, it has a crazy little vibe to it, that song. Black flies on the windowsill That we are, that we are, that we are to hold Comfort came against my wheel And every story must grow old Still i be a traveller a to face but the road is here, here with that fool found in your place that was a song of mine called black flies from the album every kingdom i listened to um, a lot of music when i was growing up i think it was uh, it was definitely other artists that sort of in- inspired me to to get into music and to play and to sort of find my own songwriting feet A lot of singer-songwriters predominantly, like people like Simon and Garfunkel and uh, listened to a lot of Van Morrison. Singer-songwriters was predominantly it. And then for me growing up, I I really grew into artists like Ray LaMontagne and Damien Rice and kind of always looked up to people like that. I brought my guitar with me, so I was going to play a quiet one. I'm I'm in quite a quiet mood, so I was going to play one of the, um, the slow jams off the album, really. It's a little song called Gracious. How would you know When everything around is changing Like the weather of a big black storm had I a ghost shadow the most, would you me
0: Ben Howard singing from his debut album Every Kingdom. That performance, as he said, was exclusive for the world. Ben also recorded another tune for us, his cover of John Martin's Couldn't Love You More. You can hear that at theworld.org From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. ¶¶¶
11: Cause you said ours were the lighthouse towers ¶¶¶ The sun upon that place ¶¶¶ Darling, I'll grow weary, happy still ¶¶¶ It's the memory of you
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Macfound.org PRI Public Radio International